It was in the year 1520 that Pope Leo X published what is known as a papal bull. A papal bull is a public decree, and in that case in 1520, the papal bull called on the residents of the empire, the Holy Roman Empire, to burn the works of Martin Luther. Since Luther's publication of the 95 Theses in 1517, Luther had been given time to recant his critique of what he claimed were the grave abuses of the Roman Catholic Church. Luther was even charged to appear in Rome to formally renounce his criticisms and to bow before the authority of the Pope. Luther refused. In 1519, the Roman Catholic theologian Johannes Eck raised the ante by publishing harsh attacks on Luther, claiming that Luther was too brash. He made too many assertions. He relied too much on the mere citation of Scripture as justification for those assertions. But the more that Luther was assailed, the more outspoken he became. Thus came the papal bull of 1520, the call to burn Luther's writings. The first thing that Luther did upon receiving that papal bull was to take a copy of it outside the city of Wittenberg and burn it. His second response was to publish a written defense in that same year of 1520. In that defense, Luther identified the crucial issue energizing the growing protest against Rome. It was the issue of authority. It came down to this fundamental question. On what basis can theological assertions be made? Pope Leo Johannes Eck and the rank-and-file Roman Catholic scholars all taught that while Scripture was indeed fundamental to the church, it still needed authoritative clarification. It needed approved authorities to make sense of it, and without these authorities, Scripture would inevitably be twisted and misunderstood and misused. It would fail to achieve the purpose for which God had given it. What were these authorities? They were the creeds and the councils the patristic commentaries, and the ex-cathedra encyclicals of the popes. According to Rome, one could make theological assertions. There was no harm in that. One could even quote the Scripture. But one had to show deference to those authorized sources which elucidated and unpacked the meaning of Scripture. Consequently, Luther's crime was that he had made assertions citing Scripture alone. Luther justified this practice by stating the following in his defense in 1520. He writes, quote, Tell me, if you can, who finally decides when two statements of the fathers contradict themselves. Scripture ought to provide this judgment which cannot be delivered unless we give to Scripture the chief place in everything, that which was acknowledged even by the fathers. That is, the Scripture is 
in and of itself, the most certain, the most accessible, and the most clear of all. Interpreting itself, approving, judging, and illuminating all other things. Certainly, Luther was not denying the benefit of consulting commentaries and creeds and confessions, those works produced by godly pastor theologians throughout history. He himself will go on to quote from the church fathers frequently and go on to advocate for the use of confessions and catechisms in the Protestant church. But what Luther was arguing for was this. God's words must have first place and last say in any theological discussion. He writes in that defense of 1520, all human words are conclusions which are deduced from God's words and must be again brought back to them and approved by them. In other words, Luther contended that our theological method, the the manner at which we arrive at the point of making theological assertions in our own words, whether that be about God, the Trinity, the person of Jesus, about salvation or the church, our theological method must demonstrably and and authentically show that the Scripture alone rules in our process of theologizing. Luther taught that the Bible is in a class all by itself. It is the norming norm, which is not normed by anything else. In a work published the next year, in 1521, Luther wrote the following. I have found out that all who write and intrigue against me have in them a stupid heart and a cowardly conscience. They fear Scripture since they well know that it is unknown to them. That is why they make such a great effort, why they writhe and twist to avoid the necessity of attacking me with Scripture and of themselves getting beaten with Scripture in response. So they invent a new lie, discover daggers, spears, and similar tomfoolery, and say that Scripture is so obscure that we cannot understand it without the interpretation of the Holy Fathers, and that therefore we have to follow not the text, but the glosses or the commentaries of the fathers. In contrast to that, he goes on to say, one must know that Scripture without any glosses is the sun and the whole light from which all teachers receive their light and not vice versa. To a church that had succumbed to the same kind of traditionalism as Judaism had succumbed to by Jesus' day, Luther's rhetoric posed a clear and present danger. In fact, Luther's arguments set the stage for one of the most famous theological debates in all of church history. The one who would rise to Luther's, to, to be Luther's chief opponent was the Roman Catholic scholar Desiderius Erasmus. Among many things, Erasmus disagreed with the way that Luther was making biblical claims about the nature of man. And so, in response to Luther's teaching on the topic, Erasmus published a work in 1524 entitled, On the Freedom of the Will. 
But more than just a traditional Roman Catholic defense of freedom of the will, Erasmus's work dealt with a crucial point of what we call epistemology. That is, the, the nature and ground of knowing. How we know things, and, and on what grounds can we be certain in our knowledge. Erasmus's opening sentence in that book on the freedom of the will immediately set forth his trajectory. He wrote this, Among the difficulties of which not a few crop up in Holy Scripture, there is hardly a more tangled labyrinth than that of free choice. You see, for Erasmus, the Scripture's teaching on human will was inherently ambiguous. Consequently, to make assertions about this profound topic simply from the Bible was intellectually and morally irresponsible. But but Erasmus' reluctance to to see clarity in that particular topic extended far beyond the issue of the human will. Erasmus actually found very little in Scripture upon which he could be certain on the basis of Scripture itself. He himself openly admitted this. He said, so far am I from delighting in assertions that I would readily take refuge in the opinion of the skeptics. This skepticism sprang from his, his, his conviction concerning the nature of the Bible itself. Erasmus explained, For there are some secret places in the Holy Scriptures into which God has not wished us to penetrate deeply. And if we try to do so, then the deeper we go, the darker and darker it becomes. By which means... We are led to acknowledge the unsearchable majesty of the divine wisdom and the weakness of the human mind. Now, it is important to note here that what Erasmus is asserting here is not about the white spaces on the pages of our Bible. He is referring to the opacity of the the meaning of the biblical text itself. It is also important to note that Erasmus was not denying the possibility of certain knowledge like the postmoderns do of our day. For Erasmus, doctrinal assertions, especially serious ones about the human will, the essence of God, the person of Jesus Christ, the promises of the gospel, they could not be made on the basis of the Bible alone. Something else was needed. Assertions on those topics could only be made with substantiating references to ecclesiastical authorities. Now, don't misunderstand. Erasmus strongly affirmed the need for Scripture, a point that is often misunderstood when reflecting upon the Reformation. The issue was not a battle over whether to use the Bible. It was something a little different. He emphatically admits, he said, the same scriptures are acknowledged and venerated by either side. Our battle is about the meaning or the clarity of scripture. By affirming scripture's necessity, by also denying its clarity... 
Erasmus cleverly argued for the necessity of appealing to these external authorities whose duty it would be to make Scripture's meaning understandable and its authority real to the masses. Doctrinal discussions were to be conducted under the auspices of the magisterium, which alone could access the dark things of Scripture through an allegorical and philosophical method of interpretation. It was the magisterium alone that could understand and apply all these edicts of the Pope and the church fathers and the councils. Erasmus contended that the work of interpretation must be left to this select group and the average church member should be satisfied simply to submit and abide by their conclusions, to challenge them And to request that the traditions be substantiated with Scripture was to challenge God's anointed. In 1525, a year after Erasmus published his work on the freedom of the will, Luther took up his pen and responded with what would be Luther's most famous work on the bondage of the will. Although it primarily focused on the debate over human will and sovereign grace, the treaties that Luther wrote powerfully articulated many of the fundamental principles which fueled the entire Reformation. Central in his work on the bondage of the will is the doctrine of Scripture's objective clarity. Aiming at Erasmus's distaste for assertions, Luther stated the following, quote, For it is not the mark of a Christian mind to take no delight in assertions. On the contrary, a man must delight in assertions or he will be no Christian. And by assertion, in order that we may not be misled by words, I mean a constant adhering, affirming, confessing, maintaining, and an invincible persevering. Luther described true Christianity as a life of certainty in the knowledge revealed in the Bible. He says, quote, The Holy Spirit is no skeptic, and it is not doubts or mere opinions that he has written on our hearts, but assertions more sure and certain than life itself and all experience. This certainty was necessary, Luther argued, because of the goodness of God and because of the nature of his word. He had come to recognize that God has given to his people a clear, accessible, understandable word that could be read and understood and applied on its own merits. The Bible is a father's speech to his own beloved children. It needed no external authority to verify it or clarify it. It was, in fact, a thing which verified and clarified everything else. For the Christian to look at Scripture with doubt, cast suspicion on the very character of the Father. In Luther's words, to doubt the Bible's clarity was imprudent and blasphemous. Certainly, this did not mean that Luther denied the reality of mystery and the reality of divine incomprehensibility. 
To affirm that God's word is clear was not to suggest that it exhaustively revealed everything there is to know, especially about God. There there remains uh, an infinite amount of knowledge, particularly about God, which is to us a mystery. Nonetheless, Luther argued that believers are to trust in the perfect and benevolent wisdom of God in his decision to reveal what he has and how he has done so, and not to speculate beyond what has been written into the area of that mystery as the philosophers so frequently did. Luther was quick to acknowledge that God often says that, but not always how or why. Listen to what he says in this quote. Scripture simply confesses the trinity of God and the humanity of Christ and the unforgivable sin. And there is nothing here of obscurity or ambiguity, but how these things can be. Scripture does not say, nor is it necessary to know. Luther also did not deny that readers do experience difficulty when reading the Scripture and sometimes even profound bewilderment. But the problem, Luther argued, was never with an inadequacy in the biblical text. It was not the biblical text that needed improvement. The problem was always with the reader. He writes again, quote, I admit, of course, that there are many texts in the Scriptures that are obscure and abstruse, not because of the majesty of their subject matter, but because of our ignorance of their vocabulary and grammar. We are the ones who are obscure and obdurate, Luther argued. This lack of ability to understand what is objectively clear in the Scriptures is part of the fallen nature, Luther rightly argued. He pointed to the Apostle Paul's words in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, which says this, A natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Like the sun which is bright in itself, Scripture shines clearly. And it does so independently of whether that light is received or rejected. In fact, that light cannot be appreciated by the blind man. And that's the predicament of all fallen men and women. They are spiritually blind, unable to see the clarity of the Word of God until the Holy Spirit performs his surgery of regeneration, giving the sinner the eyes to see. True, even after that, believers do encounter difficulty. But again, Luther argued, this is not due to inherent obscurity in Scripture, but to our own limitations, our own immaturities, our own biases, our own ignorances, our own lack of discipline in study. Ultimately for Luther, the Bible If the Bible was not clear, we have no hope. Man cannot speak more perfectly than God. Again, in his bondage of the will, he states this, At his very best, 
Are we not obscure and ambiguous enough without having our obscurity, ambiguity, and darkness augmented for us from heaven? Luther would have no part of that. Instead, he countered, let miserable men stop imputing with blasphemous perversity the darkness and obscurity of their own hearts to the holy, clear scriptures of God. Well, while Luther waged that battle to defend the clarity of Scripture some 500 years ago, that war is not over. In fact, we can say this is the battle of every age. It was the battle that was lost in the Garden of Eden as Eve succumbed to the serpent's question, did God really say And it is perhaps the most important battle that we fight in this age when the common way to skirt the authority of Scripture is to ask whether God has really spoken clearly and then to call that line of questioning humility. Well, Luther would not have us believe that Scripture is clear on the basis of his own arguments. If Scripture is clear... We must look to it to provide the testimony about itself. And there are many texts that we could turn to, but for the sake of time, I want to turn to just one. It is a text that is not commonly considered with respect to the doctrine of scriptural clarity because it frames the discussion in a very unique way. It has a special connection, however, to the polemical context in which Luther took his stand because it too makes a defense against those who are claiming that God and his word are unclear. The text is Isaiah 45, verses 18 to 23. Turn in your Bibles to that text, Isaiah chapter 45, verses 18 to 23. We don't have time this evening to go in and mine out all the great theological riches in this text, but I want to highlight several key contributions Isaiah 45 verses 18 to 23 makes to our understanding of the clarity of the prophetic word. Now, it's important to note before we look at this text in detail that it comes within a very important context in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapters 40 to 48 are widely recognized as the Mount Everest of Old Testament texts related to the transcendence of God. In the genre of a courtroom interrogation, Yahweh puts himself on the stand and he repeatedly asks and answers an all-important question. To whom, then, will you compare me? He asks this in chapter 40, verse 18, Chapter 40, verse 25, chapter 44, verse 8, and chapter 46, verse 5. It's the central question of the section. One commentator writes this about this entire section of Isaiah. This section is recorded by Isaiah to comfort Israel by declaring and demonstrating the true nature of the God of Israel, his utter uniqueness his incomparable greatness, his transcendence over all the works of his hands, his absolute control over the entire course of human history, and his wonderful nearness to his people as Savior 
and Lord. The God of Israel is the incomparable one. Now, central to this apologetic is not only Yahweh's knowledge of the future, but also his ability to reveal it in unequivocal human language before it happens. After all, anyone can claim a knowledge of the future. The prophets of the false gods were known for doing that. So the crux of the comparison here between Yahweh and these other gods is that Yahweh reveals this knowledge to man, and he does so in clear propositional forms, while the rest of the gods are silent. This emphasis can be summed up with these words. If Yahweh cannot clearly declare the future before it happens, he is no better than the dumb idols. Throughout Isaiah 40-48, to we find that the verb to tell or to declare plays a prominent role. It is found with unusual frequency in chapters 40-48. to And it indicates that a key piece of the apologetic here is God's verbal revelation. It is a key part of what distinguishes him as incomparable to the gods of the nations. Now, just as an aside on this, that this emphasis takes place in these chapters is very important because often the challenge to the clarity of God's revelation, particularly the clarity of that revelation in its original context, arises in response to the argument of divine transcendence, the nature of predictive prophecy, and the Old Testament in general. Many scholars today, including evangelical ones, claim that the prophecies of the Old Testament were not really or fully discernible to their original audiences. They were necessarily ambiguous and even subject to misunderstanding, especially if they were interpreted according to face value. Because so, God is so transcendent, he cannot be understood even when he speaks, particularly by those audiences of old. Yet it is here, in the Old Testament, to the nation of Israel, and regarding prophecy of all things, that Yahweh makes his case for his incomparability. Ultimately, God is transcendent not only because he creates and redeems and rules, he is transcendent also because he declares knowledge that is otherwise unknowable, knowledge about the future, a knowledge that is beyond the realm of human experience, and he does so clearly before it even happens. Who can do that? Yahweh can. Let's look at the text, Isaiah chapter 45, beginning in verse 18. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it and He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I am have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, 
speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is none other, no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. We'll see here quickly four emphases of Yahweh's testimony. First, note Yahweh's unmistakable identity in verse 18. His unmistakable identity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. Like one giving testimony before a jury, God begins with his identity. He is Yahweh, the great I am, the one who transcends time itself, who brought into existence all other things unseen and seen, and who created with both order and purpose. In language that is intentionally reminiscent of Genesis 1, we remember that God was the one who created out of nothing, ex nihilo, and he created by the power of his word. We call it by divine fiat. God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. God said, and it was so. There was nothing in which his word failed. And in the end, all that his word achieved was pronounced very good. No inadequacies, no inefficiencies, no frustrations. And although he is transcendent, although he exists independently from that creation, he is the one who gives life to it. He is not averse to identify with it. You see, Yahweh is not only transcendent, but he is also imminent. Unlike the nations who had a convoluted view about how the material universe came into being, the one true God says, I made it. It is mine. I am its source. Second, note Yahweh's unambiguous revelation, verse 19. And this is the crucial point for our study this evening. Verse 19 reads this, I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. To defend his uniqueness, Yahweh testifies specifically about the nature of his words. In emphatic fashion, he describes the nature of his speech in two parallel statements, two of denial and two of affirmation. Notice first how he denies what his word is. In the first half of verse 19, we see what his verbal revelation is not. He says, first of all, I have not spoken 
in secret, in some dark land. The phrase in secret refers to a hiding place, something that is undercover, something that is not exposed. In fact, we find a form of this word in Deuteronomy 29, 29. It's it's used to describe the secret things which God has not revealed, the things that God has not spoken. They indeed are secret. Here, however, Yahweh testifies that when he does reveal, when he does speak, does not remain a secret. He does not speak secretly, covertly, in camo, or anonymously. Furthermore, the phrase, in some dark land, that we see in that first phrase, in some dark land, that that dark land would refer to a place of obscurity, of perplexity, of confusion. He does not speak in some dark land because his word always dispels darkness. Instead, it was the gods of the other nations. They were the ones who spoke in such places where no one noticed, where no one could understand, but not Yahweh. Indeed, he is so transcendent, so holy, so infinitely different from us that he is indeed hidden until he speaks. Note the denial stated another way, the very next phrase, part of that parallelism, part of that denial. He says this, I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. Again, the the accusation was that Yahweh's promises had failed to deliver. But against this, Yahweh testifies that throughout redemptive history, from the formation of Jacob's descendants into a nation at Sinai to the present. God's revelation of himself, his revelation of his plan of redemption through the medium of his words, through the prophets, they were never in vain. Those revelations were never empty, never meaningless. In the same way that God's word was not was was not somehow misleading in the act of creation. It was also not misleading in the act of promising and of covenanting. As he spoke to Israel through the prophets, he gave clear knowledge by which Israel could know him truly and redemptively. One writer in response to this writes, God's word is a plain word and not intrinsically puzzling. It is Certainly not misleading, nor does it deal in deceitful commands or promises whereby people would follow them and end up in a maze of meaninglessness. The Lord's word is not shifting sand, but solid ground. If the idols of the nations had anything to say, they must have said it in secret, but not Yahweh. He has spoken in such a way that whoever has ears to hear can hear and understand. The one who dwells, as Paul says, in the secrecy of inapproachable light, 1 Timothy 6, 16. When he speaks, he steps out of that secrecy and reveals himself to his people clearly. Two parallel statements of denial. Now we see in verse 19 in the second half, two parallel statements of affirmation. First of all, notice this, the Lord says, I, the Lord, speak righteousness. 
The word righteousness refers to that which is accurate, to that which is correct. It is the opposite of that which is crooked and twisted. The term refers to the purity and precision of God's statements. They are always the very standard of rightness. And as such, we can translate that word there, truth. I, Yahweh, speak truth. And in the context of this trial setting, this truth is not just something that God himself can only know in abstract. It is truth that can also be known by those to whom he speaks. As testimony to his uniqueness among all other so-called gods, Yahweh only speaks that which is pure, correct, and true. Furthermore, we see in that second statement of the affirmation, he says he declares things that are upright. This term here, too, is important. It describes that which is a level way. It refers to orderliness. It refers to integrity. It emphasizes that our transcendent God does not speak in ambiguities and equivocality, but he speaks plainly and without duplicity. The language he uses is not murky or filled with secret codes, seeking some game of hide-and-go-seek with his children. His words can be taken according to the customary usage of the language. They can be trusted at face value. They are not obscure, promising one thing literally, but in reality meaning something quite different. And some of his most direct language and affirmation of biblical perspicuity, John Kelvin the reformer said this of verse 19. Quote, this enables us to see clearly how wicked are the speeches of those who say that no certainty can be obtained from the word and who pretend that it is a nose of wax in order to deter others from reading it. For thus do wicked men blaspheme because the mere doctrine of the word exposes and refutes their errors. But we reply with David, Thy word, O Lord, is a lamp to our feet and a light to our paths. Psalm 119, 105. We reply with Isaiah and the rest of the prophets that the Lord has taught us nothing that is obscure or ambiguous or false. We reply also with Peter that the prophetic word is made more sure and you do well if you take heed to it as a lamp burning in a dark place till the light of dawn and the morning star arises in your heart, 2 Peter 1.19. Let blind and weak-sighted men therefore accuse themselves when they cannot endure this brightness of the word. But whatever may be the darkness by which they shall endeavor to clothe it, let us firmly adhere and steadfastly adhere to this heavenly light. He continues, They, that is the predictions of the false prophets of the gods, are uncertain and, un, uh, and deceitful. But nothing of this kind can be found in God's answers, for he speaks openly and utters nothing that is deceitful or ambiguous. But experience tells us that Scripture is somewhere dark and hard to be understood. This is indeed true, he continues, but ought not to be ascribed to the, but, but ought to be described to the dullness and the slowness of our apprehension, and not to the Scripture. For blind or weak-sighted men have no right to accuse the Son because they cannot look at it. Indeed, Yahweh always speaks righteousness. 
and he declares things that are upright. So we see his identity, we see his revelation. Thirdly, we see his undeniable distinctiveness, verses 20 and 21, his undeniable distinctiveness. Gather yourselves and come, draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare, set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. The Lord now intensifies his testimony. He invites the nations to make scrupulous examination of him and the gods that they acclaimed. He calls on them to evaluate his prophetic speech as delivered through his servants, the prophets, and to examine the speech delivered by the prophets of those false gods. And the central point of comparison is this. Who has announced this from old? Who has long ago declared it? Here we find a key apologetic purpose of predictive prophecy. You see, the purpose of predictive prophecy is not simply to give us a knowledge of future things, although they certainly do that. But a key part of a key apologetic purpose of predictive prophecy is to set God apart from all the other so-called gods. It is to declare his, incom- his incomparability as the one true God. If such prophecies that he made when they were first delivered were fundamentally obscure, if they were cloaked with ambiguities and equivocal language, so that their meaning could be bent like a wax nose, if God's prophecies were not found in the language, not found to to have meaning in the language at the moment of their delivery, but had that meaning only to be supplied later, ex eventu, after the fact of fulfillment, the apologetic value of such prophecies would be pointless. The prophecies of Yahweh's servants would then be no different than the prophecies of the false prophets of the false gods. They would be ambiguous, just like the prophecies of those who claim to prophesy today. It's all a wax nose. Intentionally ambiguous, so that it can mean anything that somebody later on wants it to mean. One commentator writes in response to this text, which of the gods ever once specifically foretold the future? The answer is never. Of course, there were plenty of cases of prediction, but like those of modern astrologers, they were so cloaked in ambiguity that they would always be right no matter whatever happened. But not so Yahweh. He announces things clearly from old. He long ago declares things to be. His prophecies are clear. And that leads to a fourth and final observation that we can make from this text, and it's this in verses 22 and 23, Yahweh's unqualified worthiness. We see His unmistakable identity, His unambiguous revelation, His undeniable distinctiveness, and that leads now to this fourth and final observation to make, this 
element of his testimony which now reaches the climax. It is his unqualified worthiness, verses 22 to 23. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear allegiance. Because Yahweh is incomparable, because He is transcendent, because He knows the end from the beginning, and because He reveals Himself clearly, He is worthy of unqualified allegiance. The clarity of His Word manifest in predictive prophecy And salvation promises and covenants of old cannot help then but lead to certainty. To certainty in placing belief and faith in Him. It leads us to bow before Yahweh with unqualified loyalty. It leads us to confess Him as Savior without a shadow of a doubt. And we place our promises therefore in Him. We place our faith in His promises Not as wishful thinking, but as absolutely justified. Justified because he has spoken to us clearly. Ultimately, we do not exalt the greatness of our God by believing that he is so transcendent, so far beyond us that he cannot reveal himself to us in human language with clarity. We do not exalt the greatness of our God by claiming that though He has spoken, His Word is in itself dark, a labyrinth that is impenetrable without the enlightening and clarifying additives of human traditions. The knowledge of God contained in the Bible has been revealed in such a way that it can be sufficiently sufficiently understood in and of itself by those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. Now as we close, I want to leave you with several important implications of this doctrine. There's so much more that we could discuss, so many other texts that shed additional light on this great doctrine, but let's wrap it up with these final implications. Number one, let us remember that our beliefs about Scripture ultimately reflect upon God. Our beliefs about Scripture ultimately reflect upon God. We cannot say that God is unwilling or unable to speak clearly to His people without impugning His character, without impugning His wisdom, His power, and His benevolence. As Luther stated, it is both imprudent and blasphemous to claim that God's Word is dark and inaccessible. So let us be careful. Let us say all kinds of things about ourselves as its readers. Let us claim all kinds of things about our own ignorance, about our own dullness, about our own obstinacy, about our own ignorances and biases, but let us never attribute to the Word of God the problem of our own existence, the problem of our own sin. Second, The clarity of God's Word is to be recognized as a special expression of God's benevolence. 
As James 1.17 says, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. And the clarity of his revelation is one of those good gifts. In fact, the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture is one of the most hope-instilling, joyful doctrines that we find in all of Scripture. It is a father's language to his beloved. Third, because Scripture is clear, it is able to accomplish its purpose. Ambiguous words have no definite aim. There is no explicit target. But because God's word is clear, it achieves the purpose for which he sent it. That's why Paul states to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verses 15 to 17, he says, from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is inspired in God, and therefore it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Fourth, because God's Word is clear, it and it alone will satisfy our deepest needs. We must look to it for answers to questions about God and salvation. We must look to it to form our convictions and to feed our souls. And let us take comfort in this. There is not a better source. Read books, read commentaries, read creeds, confessions, yes. But remember, they are not an improvement on the Word of God. They do not provide what is lacking in the Word of God. They systematize, they summarize, they apply the Scriptures to their own generation, but they are not superior. The danger of traditionalism always exists when we place our confidence and satisfaction in those secondary means. Man must live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that's why Peter says in 1 Peter 2, 2 to 3, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow with respect to salvation if indeed you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. Fifth, and finally, because Scripture is clear, it has authority. It has authority. It means we cannot be like Erasmus who grimaced at the idea of making assertions without quoting secondary sources. It is because the Scripture is clear that we can make assertions quoting Scripture alone. We can follow the practice of the apostles who in making their own arguments would not say such and such a rabbi said this or such and such a targum said this, but they would say merely the Scripture says or David says, or Isaiah says. Ultimately, the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture is the linchpin for the doctrine of the authority of Scripture. And you remove that linchpin, you you remove that doctrine of clarity, and the Bible is emptied of its intellectual and moral imperatives. And finally, just speaking of imperatives... I want to address those of you who have not trusted in Yahweh, who have not trusted in His Son as Lord and Savior, 
who have not bowed before His majesty and transcendence, who have not embraced the promise given through His Son, Jesus Christ, that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. I'm going to make an assertion to you. And that assertion is not based on a creed. It's not based on a confession. That assertion is not based on a pope or a commentary. It's not based on my own personal experience, nor is it based upon the experience of this congregation. The authority of this assertion is based simply from the Word of God. And it says this, Repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. I can make that assertion to you, stake my entire life upon it, that that is the means to salvation. Because God has said it, and He said it clearly. And if you have not done that, you need to do that tonight, because the Word of God tells you to. It calls upon you to abandon your sin, to flee to Jesus, to fall prostrate before Him and recognize that He alone is your hope, and that He alone can do what no other God can, and that is to forgive your sins and to give you eternal life. Let's pray. Father, we do thank You for the clarity of Your Word. We do thank You that in Your goodness, You have not given us a dark word, but one that is light. You've given us a word that clearly explains the gospel, the way to be right with You, to enjoy life with You in peace. We thank You that we, we don't need to go on some great expedition to try and find that knowledge somewhere. You have proclaimed it to us with crystal clarity. We thank You for that word which then gives to us life which gives to us a revelation of Your character, that gives to us a revelation of Your will. Indeed, we echo the words of the psalmists who say, for with You is the fountain of life, and in Your light we do see light. And the unfolding of Your words give us light. It imparts understanding to the simple. We thank You for that great gift of your goodness to us, your word. And we give you thanks in the name of Jesus. Amen.